Hey everyone! Um, so I know before you get into the episode, you are going to notice that there is a difference in the um, volume and there's going to be some feedback in this episode. This is my first guest episode, so I'm still trying to work out the kinks and understand what to do in this situation. So thank you again, uh, thank you in advance, sorry, for um, still sticking through this. And um, here's the episode. I hope you guys enjoy it. Oh, same. Okay, perfect. Yeah, it's the video. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Alrighty, ready when you are? Alright, three, two, one. Hello my history nerds and welcome to the Historia podcast. My name is Stephanie and this is episode 14, Virginia Repay. Today we have a very special episode which calls for a very special guest. I would like to introduce you to my very dear friend, Ash, who is the host of What Do You Know About?, which is a podcast that is available on all major streaming platforms. Uh, She's my podcast sister, my gothic sister, and also a fellow Canadian, um, just on the other side of the country? Yeah, there we go. Yeah. (laughs) I just love the country. (laughs) Geography is not my best friend. Ash, if you could please tell us just a little bit more about yourself. Hey guys, I'm Ash. Um, as Steph said, I'm the host of the What Do You Know About podcast, where we look at like the lesser known sides of history. Um, so yeah, come check us out. Um, I've been a history nerd all my life, starting with like the Holocaust and the Titanic and all that jazz. Um, and, lo- and I love like the 1920s and early Hollywood, so I'm really excited for this episode. <laughs> um, so I'll also include, I'll grab a link from you later uh, for your podcast and stuff, so I'll include that in the show notes so everybody can run down there or to the side or wherever it is on whatever platform you're listening on. And uh, grab that and please be sure to subscribe to them on whatever platform you are listening on, including mine, please and thank you because you love me. Um, All right, so before we actually get into the episode, I do have to warn everyone that in this episode we will be talking about sexual assault, so maybe save this one for when the kids aren't around, and if you are a victim of sexual assault or know anyone who is and they need any sort of help, I've included a link to Ending Violence, which is an association here in Canada that aims to end gender-based violence and has a an expansive catalog of numbers and services in each province. Um, province, Providence, I can't say that properly. <laughs> um, so for today's episode, because I am extremely tired, and as I had mentioned to Ash earlier, I was originally going to drink um, this one thing called the Bee's Knees, but I am so fucking tired that I've opted for a mug filled with a about just over a quarter of coffee and three quarters of Baileys. And I've been drinking this since 8 p.m. and it's now uh, 20 to 11, so I'm pretty tipsy. <laughs> yeah, I'm just drinking chocolate. Oh, oh, that sounds good. 
Yeah. Oh, I should I do was that. craving it. <laughs> um, I chocolate milk with the cho chocolate mix, so double chocolate, you know. Oh. Oh. I should try that. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know what I've always loved with the one where they take like the actual chocolate like shavings or like chunks and they mix it in with the warm cream. It's fantastic. Makes me break out into zits, but it's totally worth it. So we actually have this place out here called Charlie's Chocolate Factory, and they Stop. make amazing chocolates, and they make like. Uh, chocolate stick so it's the um so they use like the mold with the chocolate and then add the marshmallows on the top of it all onto the stick so you just have to take your stick and just stir it into your hot milk and it's so good oh whenever i come out there can you please take me mm -hmm. it'll be just half my suitcase right there yeah i will happily do because it's only like two bucks per stick Fucking so awesome and we will just stock up on chocolate. <laughs> I'll come back to Toronto with a face full of zits, but that's fine. Ah, <laughs> Alright guys, so if you subscribe to the true side of TikTok, you may have heard of Virginia's name and the uh, phrase that accompanies her name, which is Hollywood's first scandal. Before we get into the story, let's talk about our main characters. Virginia Caroline Rippey was born in Chicago, Illinois on July 7, 1881. Her mother died when she was 11 years old and she was raised by her grandmother after that. She began working as a model at the age of 18 and moved to San Francisco in 1916 to pursue her career as an artistic model, which I don't, I never quite understood the difference between artistic model and regular model but then I realized it was kind of like pinup girls which is yeah, yeah. it's cute yeah. um so like regular model you be like the ones that are in like your Sears catalog but then your artistic model is the one that's that probably a little bit more scandalous oh sexy <laughs> <laughs> Um, so if you follow us on Instagram, which you obviously should be at this point, um, I will be putting up some pictures of her that I've found, and honestly, she is, she's freaking gorgeous. Um, like, she's got that, like, I mean, it's black and white, but, like, you can, it's, like, flawless. I dream of a, fa a flawless face. Um, but yeah, so she got engaged that year to Robert Moskowitz. Um, who is a dress designer who unfortunately was killed in a streetcar accident not long after their engagement. And after that, she would later move to uh, Los Angeles. She actually had a role in a silent movie called Paradise Garden alongside Harold Lockwood, which thankfully you were able to get a clip of for me because the ones that I have found prior to you sending me that clip were all grainy and it was horrible and I couldn't make out anything. Um, but this one was actually on YouTube, so I'm going to include a link of that into the show notes um, so you can watch it if you like. Yeah, it's good. It's really good. I love watching like some of the older films, so I always know where to look. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it was only like an hour long or something like that. Yeah, I yeah, they were very short at that point, anyways. No. 
Doesn't seem long for their time frame. Yeah. Um, so in 1919, she began dating director and producer Henry Learman, and they actually began living together, which was quite scandalous for the time, and they remained together up until she died in 1921. Um, so now we'll move on to our other character, er, character, <laughs> uh, so Roscoe Conkling, Fatty Arbuckle was born on March 24th, 1887, and was a popular silent film star who starred in countless movies. Uh, he was also a comedian, director, and film producer. He was born in Smith Center, uh, sorry, Smith Center, Kansas, and was one of nine children. And I mean, he, Fatty was quite, is fitting. He was a big ass fucking baby. Like, like, like 13 and 16 pounds, like that poor woman. Yeah. Especially after nine, like with not having nine children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so his, so, I mean, obviously we realized that this was ye olden days and, you know, Genetics wasn't necessarily a thing that people understood back then, but his father actually accused his mother of fucking around because they were both very thin and he didn't believe that this big baby was a result of the two of them. Yeah, like, <laughs> dude. <laughs> so stupid. Um, but because of his, si his size, his mother suffered from many complications during his birth, and these would eventually contribute to her death some years later. Uh, he first performed on the stage at the age of eight, and continued to do so until the age of 11 when his mother died. Uh, he was then forced to work as a waiter in a hotel, and was eventually approached by a singer to participate in a talent show. And, uh, you know, that's eventually, he got into films, he started producing them, he started writing them, and, but yeah, that's, that's Roscoe. <laughs> I think, like, in 1914, that he ended up getting paid, like, a thousand dollars a day for work. Yeah, what's, I mean. Like, that is insane. We don't get paid a thousand dollars a day. I would love to get paid a thousand dollars a day. That'd be great. Like, three million for th in three years would be just great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, now that we've all become acquainted with our main players here, it's time for us to talk about the basic facts of the scandal, which is that on September 5th, 1921, Arbuckle and his friends Lowell, Sh Lowell Sherman and Fred Fishback I love saying yeah, his name. name. Fishback. Fishback. <laughs> hey, bring that fish back. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to leave that part in. I'm not even going to bother editing that out. Cause... No, totally don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Arbuckle and his friends drove to San Francisco and they booked three rooms at the St. Francis Hotel. And they then invited many beautiful women to the hotel for a little party. 
Um, I do want to point out that Arbuckle drove from LA to San Francisco with a second degree burn on his ass that was caused by him sitting down on acid soaked rags while at his mechanic. Okay, why the heck would he do that? Yeah. Like, no, dude, don't sit down anywhere at a mechanic shop. Honestly, I've never actually been into a mechanic shop before. Anytime I've ever had anything wrong with my car, and this is going to sound horrible, but my dad never let me go. He's just like, oh, it's okay, I'll take care of it. So I don't like... Oh, so I go into mechanic shops, but... I am that girl that when I go, when the inevitable day comes when I have to go into a mechanic shop by myself... I am pretty sure I'm going to get scammed. I'm oh, definitely... probably. Thanks, Ash. <laughs> no, it's honest to God. Like, that is what happens. <laughs> no, it's horrible. Because they, they will look at a woman and they're like, you don't know anything. No. And they will literally do their best to scam you. Ugh. Oh, but yeah, so... At some point during all of the Roaring Twenties merriment, Virginia was found in room 1219, which was Arbuckle and Fishback's room. Um, They called the hotel's doctor, who determined that Virginia was drunk and for some reason decided the best, resu- the best thing to do was to give her morphine. <laughs> Never the good thing to do. No. So, on September 8th, her quote-unquote friend, Bambina Maud Delmont, took her to the hospital, and she is the one that told the doctor that Arbuckle raped Virginia. The doctor determined, uh, sorry, the doctor examined her and found no evidence of rape. Virginia died on September 7th, 1921, from complications from a ruptured bladder. Delmont told the police that Arbuckle raped Virginia, and they somehow, they essentially just jumped to the conclusion that her bladder had ruptured due to an overweight Arbuckle lying on top of her. Once the news got out, there were quite a few allegations that were flying around, such as Virginia, um, that, you know, Virginia has a history of chronic UTIs um, that would get irritated by, by her alcohol consumption, or the claims by Virginia's manager that Arbuckle used a piece of ice to penetrate Virginia, and this would eventually evolve into a Coke bottle or a champagne bottle. Yeah, I got nope. it. Yeah, I got it. Ooh, I hit my mic, my bad. I gotta take a sip of drink more for that. Yeah, oh, it's pretty intense. Oh, okay. I'm gonna have to. <laughs> Crisis averted. <laughs> so, people were outraged by the news. At the time, this man was regarded as one of the most chaste men in pictures and was married. Um, But thanks to yellow journalism and William Hearst's sensational headlines, the masses turned against him. Morality groups called for him to be executed, and studios didn't want to deal with negative press, so they instructed Arbuckle's friends and fellow actors not to associate with him and essentially alienated him. Uh, William... 
Yeah. Which I think, from what I recall from the very few scandals I know, that was kind of like the going thing that they did. It was just like, oh, something happened. Just shoo them away. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, so, William Hart, <laughs> who was a fellow silent film actor who didn't like Arbuckle, went around town stating that he was guilty. Arbuckle would later respond by creating a parody film portraying Hart as a thief, bully, and wife beater. So one thing about William Hart is that a lot of the um, movies that he was in, he was kind of portrayed, he kind of did a cowboy sort of role. So um, he essentially took a cowboy character and made him into all three of those things. So while researching for this podcast, I was actually very surprised to learn about Arbuckle's involvement in introducing two of the most famous actors of the Golden Age um, to the screen. Any guesses who that might be? I'm trying to think, but I'm like, I don't know who he would have introduced. Like, he wouldn't have introduced Charlie Chaplin. Charlie was already, I think, in the public eye because he was, like, the top-grossing actor with Fatty second to him. So I don't think Fatty would have been like, oh, yeah, I introduced this guy to stardom. Funny enough, he was actually, he had actually mentored Charlie Chaplin. Really? Yes. Okay. So he's one of the individuals. Any guess who the second person might be? No. So I'm like, unless it was like Rudolph Valentino or something, but I don't think they, they would have known each other. Buster Keaton. Okay, I like Buster Keaton. Yeah. I like him. Oh, you know. He's very good. Um... So when the news broke out, Chaplin was actually in England at the time, and he had known Arbuckle for several years at this point, and he told reporters that he could not believe that Arbuckle had anything to do with Rupay's death, and he knew Arbuckle to be a genial, easygoing type who wouldn't even hurt a fly. And at the same time, Keaton released a statement in Arbuckle's defense and was reprimanded by his studio. I mean, in a way, I'm like, hey, Ar- Arbuckle, at this point, I'm like, he could have been an accident. Like, an accidental death, right? Like, he could have, mm-hmm. like, he still could have raped her. Like, we all know in Hollywood, there's not great... Yeah. We talked about that on the, on the episode that we have about the Chateau Mermont. Yeah. Like, there's not a great sex culture, and it's been going on for a very long time. So yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if he maybe did rape her, or he, and even if that was, like, a more of an accidental rape, that he didn't read the cues, because he was probably also drunk. Yeah. And then, yes, that she already had issues and stuff like that with her bladder and vagina and everything that his weight and the act itself may have caused something. 
Yeah. And so that was an accident. Like, I don't think he did it on purpose. So I kind of agree with Chopper. I was like, yeah, he wouldn't have done it on purpose. But there is the possibility of it being an accident still. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so that movie that I just mentioned about William Hart, Buster Keaton actually bought the film from Arbuckle and rela- and released the film titled The Frozen North in 1922. And after that, Hart refused to speak to Keaton for years. Okay. I mean, makes sense. <laughs> Uh, So Arbuckle was arrested on September 17th, 1921, and was initially charged with first-degree murder, but this was later downgraded to manslaughter, and Arbuckle was released on bail three weeks later. Um, So this is going to be... I mean, when we think of, you know, over-the-top sort of Hollywood trials... Personally, the first thing that comes to mind is obviously the O.J. Simpson trial. This kind of tops this out a little bit. So, here's another guess how many. But guess how many trials we had to go through for this thing. Probably, like, at least three. Yeah, three. I'm like, at knowing the time frame... The amount of appeals and stuff like that that they would have done, there'd be at least, at least three trials. Like, we're lucky we didn't get, well, actually, no, I'm kind of sad, but we're kind, we, we are lucky that we didn't get, like, multiple trials, um, like a third trial with the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp thing. <laughs> like. If we get a third trial for that, I am taking a leave of absence from work, and I am literally going to sit there and watch the screen, because that last trial... Whew. Oh, I no. I literally spent my days just watching it. Yeah. Um, but we're not getting a third one because Amber Heard has no money. Like, you know, the appeal because she's now being sued by the insurance companies over it, so she doesn't have enough money to deal with it all. Um. Oh, so I didn't know that. There's not going to be a third, thankfully, in a way. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't want. About it all the time, but I do want to watch this go down. <laughs> but yeah, like, I'm not surprised that there's gonna be multiple trials. <laughs> so, the first of three trials began on November 14th, 1921, in San Francisco. Arbuckle hired Gavin McNabb as his defense attorney, and the DA for San Francisco was Matthew Brady, who I will talk about after we've discussed the trials, because he's, uh, he's quite an interesting character. Uh, so the principal witnesses for the prosecutor were Zay Previn and Delmont. Other witnesses include Betty Campbell, who was also a model and was attending the party, and she testified that Arbuckle was smiling, was seen smiling hours after the alleged rape. Um, the previously mentioned Zay Previn, who was a guest at this party, and testified that Repay said, Roscoe hurt me. Uh, Grace Hultson was a nurse at the local hospital and testified that Arbuckle could have raped her because of the bruises on Rapay's body. 
Um, the so-called expert witness was Dr. Edward Heinrich, um, who was a local criminologist who claimed that the fingerprints on a door on the doorknob proved that Rupay tried to escape, but Arbuckle stopped her by putting his hand over hers. And okay. <laughs> there was also Dr. Arthur uh, Beardsley, who is the hotel doctor, who testified that excessive force would be needed in order to damage the bladder. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, that's a given. Thanks, I Doc. Know, I'm like, I'm like, that's that thing's like pretty well made to withstand things. Yeah. So something had to, like, it had to be either have been already pretty weakened or extensional force needed. <laughs> So, each of these claims were disproven during the cross-examination. Campbell admitted that Brady threatened to charge her with perjury if she didn't testify against Arbuckle. Nurse Hulton admitted that cancer could have also caused the ruptured bladder, and that the bruising could have been caused by her jewelry while she was having convulsions. Okay, I'm, I'm not so sure on the jewelry part. <laughs> I mean, but it, the key part I could see, because like at that point you didn't really know the best about it. Yeah. And stuff. And, and if she better. did, and if she did have a, you know, a history of chronic UTIs, as they've said, that does weaken your bladder yeah. a lot. So. Well, I think something, I had also seen something about her that she may have had an abortion or something, but there's like... Yes, I did hear that part as well. Sorry. That could also definitely have, like if she'd had one previous, that could have weakened it, right? Like there's a lot of things that could have weakened it, but then that might have just been the final straw. No. Um, so Dr. Heinrich's claims were also disproven by a maid who testified that the doorknobs are regularly cleaned. And at the time where he went to apparently go look for fingerprints, those that doorknob was already wiped. So it's easy to wipe stuff. So like for, of fingerprints, it's so easy. Yeah. So like yeah, I because like the fingerprint thing didn't add up to me. Which when they're like, we could tell that he had stopped her by putting his hand over hers. And, like yeah, but you know that every, everybody's touching the doorknob. Does that mean at this point I've I've done God knows what to somebody because I've held the door after them? I mean, transfer of oils. <laughs> and if it was his room, anyways, his fingers like his fingerprints are gonna be on that doorknob. Yeah. Like, he's the one who's actually using the room. She's the one who kind of walked into his room. If you, like, kind of a thing, right? Like, that she's not the one who's supposed to be in there technically. Yeah. I mean, at this point, if it's going to be the fact about what we leave in our rooms, if I ever go missing, all someone needs to do is run their hand on that little rug I have in front of my dresser. And I'm telling you right now, you will have hair. Oh, yeah. Like, I have I... hair everywhere. Like, <laughs> I'm going to somehow be a suspect in a murder crime because my hair got there because I lose it constantly. I've told Troy the same thing. I go over and 
I'll like, I'll just like sit there and he'll be like, why is your hair on my pillow? I wasn't anywhere near your bed. It's not my fault. It travels. It flows. I don't know what to do. Exactly. Well, <laughs> like, I used to in the library and we would have to use tape to tape on barcodes for like magazines and different things. Oh my so god. On many magazines that if a <laughs> library magazine is at a crime scene, I'm screwed. <laughs> oh my god. This is stuck there for eternity. Oh my lord. We're well. I'll bail you out. You bail me out. I'm sure it'll be fine. It's our. It'll be our first offense. What are we gonna do? Um. Also, Doctor Beardsley stated that Rupay never stated to him that she was assaulted. Well, I wouldn't think that she would because she was drunk out of her mind, according to everyone else. Yeah. Um. So on November twenty eighth, Arbuckle took the stand. He was descri- he's described as keeping his answers very simple and direct and appeared unflustered, which I would hope he would because he's an actor. So, you know, I don't think I mean, he's going to be wailing all over the place. And it's a where everyone's like, remember, they're actors. They do this for a living. Yeah. Well, to- like, well then you can tell that Amber Heard doesn't know how to act. <laughs> yeah, I was just about to say. <laughs> uh, so he so tells. Right we can tell, okay, yeah, Johnny Depp could get his roles. Yeah. But she, she herself probably couldn't get and keep roles. <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> um, so Arbuckle testified that at the time of the incident, he had known Repay for five, about five or six years, and she had arrived at the party around noon that day. Sometime later, he went to his room to change to drive another guest, May Todd, into town. Uh, when he got to his room, he found Repay throwing up in the bathroom, and she told him that she was ill and wanted to lie down, so he carried her into the bedroom. He then left the room to get some of the other guests to help him out, and when they came back to the room, they found Repay on the floor by the bed violently convulsing and ripping at her clothes. They tried to calm her down by placing her in a tub with cold water, and Arbuckle and Fishback went to, um, they, so this is the part where I found kind of confusing, and it's primarily because nobody, I didn't really see anything about where she was when the doctor came to examine her. But according to Arbuckle, he and Fishback carried her into room 1227, which was the party room, and called the hotel doctor. Okay. Which Why I'm... would you carry her into a party room yeah. if she's ill? And she was on a bed. where she, I mean, she'd be more comfortable there. Yeah, like, leave her where she is and call the doctor to there. Don't fucking move her. Yeah. And into a party room where everybody can oogle at her, like yeah. So, um, also for everybody that's going to be heading to my Instagram, um, I will actually post a picture of the you know mentioned room twelve twenty seven, and it literally just looked like you know those, you know those marble statues where they have like the naked woman just like leaning on like this bed kind of thing looking couch. 
you know, with yeah. the one with the one sort of um, armrest. It, the thing that they had in that room kind of looks like that. And it's, it was just a shit show. There's like fabric and glasses and it was a fucking mess. Um, but the hotel took a picture of it and, <laughs> you know, that's what I found. Um, so everyone assumed that Repay was just shit-faced. And the doctor said she could just sleep it off. So the guests left her in the room to sleep while Arbuckle continued his plans and took May into town. And according to him, that was, you know, what had happened. Um, the prosecution constantly used the medical report about the state of Repay's bladder to support their claim that Arbuckle used her illness as an excuse to rape and kill her. Still, he maintained that he never physically hurt or sexually assaulted her at this party, and he had never made any inappropriate, advance- inappropriate advances to any woman in his life. After the defense rest, the jury was sequestered and returned on December 4th with a deadlock 10-2 not guilty verdict, and it was declared a mistrial. And this part I found very interesting. Um, so I'm I only kind of learned about this because of the People versus O.J. Simpson, <laughs> but from what I understand is you have a group of people that you want to have in the jury, and both sides has the right to say who you want and don't want in the trial. Well, this was not found out until apparently after the trial had happened, but the defense brought to the attention that a juror by the name of Helen Hubbard, who, mind you, had continuously stated that she would continue to vote vote guilty until hell freezes over, um, they essentially found out that she was the wife of a lawyer who worked in the DA's office. Hmm. Yeah. So from the beginning, she had essentially made up her mind. She's like, I don't want to look at no fucking exhibits. I don't want to look at the transcripts. And I mean, this was apparently the reason why. I think though, like at that time, though, it was very, um, it was a big thing to be on a jury, right? And they weren't the greatest at their jury uh, selection process still. Yeah. Right? Like, now it's super... You say, like, oh, hey, you want a day off work? Come to jury duty. And um, stuff like that. And even the fact that they had a female on the jury says a lot at that point because there's still i think at that point a lot of male that you were more likely to have a pilot male yeah so like having a female like good on you like even if she's gonna be biased Mm -hmm. at least you had a female on there to support the victim and i mean let's be completely honest if it was an all male jury not guilty right away really 
Yeah, I kind of do think so. I mean, I would. I kind of think that at that point in time, what we would obviously think is, I mean, today think be like, oh, like you know, fuck you, sir. Like that's not right. They would just been like, ah ha ha, boys play. Yeah. So. <laughs> I think I think there might be like a couple people like because I mean it also depends on if you like at that point when you have a celebrity on trial, it might also be like, do I like that type of humor? Do I not like that type of humor? And like his like style of acting and stuff that you could, I could see that the jury, even if it's all male, being also biased on that. Yeah. Right. And not actually looking at me and looking and going, "Mm, no, we don't like you as a person. Uh (laughs) So we're going to vote guilty. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's well, right. I mean, it depends as to their view of a celebrity. Yeah. Right? Oh, well. So, the second trial began on January 11th, 1922, and the defense and prosecution team and the presiding judge remained the same. Pretty much the same evidence was presented, with the exception of a few things. Um, So Zay Previn admitted that Brady forced her to lie. Uh, There was also another piece of evidence that was presented, which was a former security guard for Culver Studios by the name of Jesse Norgard. Um, testified that Arbuckle asked him for a key to Rapay's dressing room, and he even tried to bribe him to get it. However, his testimony was called into question because it turns out that Jesse was an ex-con who at the time was charged with the sexual assault of an eight-year-old girl and was going to be given a reduced sentence by Brady in exchange for his testimony. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, So the defense brought into question Rapay's history of promiscuity and excessive drinking. Um, And once the jury was sequestered once again, it came back again, deadlock of 10-2, not guilty, and was once again declared a mistrial. Ugh. Ick. So, the final trial began on March 13, 1922. Um, At this point in time, Arbuckle's movies had been banned, and the newspapers were filled with just scandalous stories of murders and orgies. Uh, Delmont was actually touring the country in a one-woman show and called herself the woman who signed the murder charge against Arbuckle, which was quite a mouthful for a title. I do say, like, if you want to have a catchphrase, you want to have it short and sweet that people are actually going to remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's That's too much. a long title that you've given yourself. Yeah. Um, so she went around talking about that and was lecturing about how Hollywood was a bad place. Um, so, I mean, yeah, 
I mean, it, even if <laughs> even if she went around saying that today, she'd be pretty spot on. Um, yeah. So the defense, they really came into this trial swinging. Uh, they produced new evidence about Rapay's past and her health condition. They were also informed that Zay Previn had actually fled the country to avoid being in custody. Um, Arbuckle once again testified in his defense, and the saving grace for the defense was Buster Keaton swooping in and saving the day by providing evidence of Delmont's involvement in prostitution, extortion, and blackmail. So, yeah, I mean, those are really heavy, heavy words, sir. Um, during the closing statement, McNabb addressed how unfair this trial is and how Brady fell for Delmont's claims, calling her the complaining witness who never witnessed. Which, again, is okay. quite a name. Um... Needed to work on like their like nicknaming like yeah like techniques I guess. <laughs> um, and as we had mentioned earlier, Brady, as we've seen from some of the allegations that were made against him, or what he's essentially forced witnesses to do, we can tell he's not exactly the best guy. If all of this is allegedly, if all of this is true, he's not a very good person. But it turns out that Brady really, really wanted to be governor. And I guess he saw this trial as like, you know, his ticket to, you know, securing votes. But um, yeah, so again, the jury was sequestered and it took them six minutes to deliberate. Five of those minutes were actually spent writing an apology to Arbuckle that read as follows. Acquittal is not enough for Roscoe Arbuckle. We feel that a great injustice injustice has been done to him. We also feel that it is our plain duty to give him this exoneration under the evidence for there was not the slightest proof um, adducent, adduced to connect him in any way with the commission of a crime. That again was a fucking mouthful. Jesus. He mainly through he was manly. He mainly he was manly throughout the case, and told a straightforward story on the witness stand, which we all believe. I would hope you would, because again, he is an actor. Yeah. The happening at the ho- okay, the thing is, he can't even mention it, the happening at the hotel. It's not a jig. <laughs> Someone died, for fuck's sakes. Uh, so, the happening at the hotel was an unfortunate affair of which Arbuckle, so the evidence shows, was in no way responsible. We wish him success and hope that the American people will take the judgment of 14 men and women who have sat listening for 31 days to evidence that Roscoe Arbuckle is entirely innocent and free of all blame. 
<laughs> so, even obviously, <laughs> society apparently. Yeah. Um, but obviously, Arbuckle's public image couldn't be restored despite his acquittal and the apology. He also didn't get away scot free though, because he was ordered to pay a five hundred dollar fine for ha- fine for having alcohol because this was during prohibition. Yeah. Um, he had over seven hundred thousand dollars in legal in legal fees, which in today's money is equivalent to twelve million four hundred and sixty five thousand four hundred and sixteen dollars and sixty seven cents, and that's that's fucking insane. Um, but he had to sell his house and his cars to pay off his debt. Uh, he was banned... I know. <laughs> he was banned from working in films in the U.S. and theaters de- uh, declined to show his films, which, um, from what I understand, is one of the reasons why a lot of his films are lost. Um, so... Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Like, that point home, it's like, you have this kind of scandal and you were not taking a chance. Yeah. Um, so, to help with his financial situation, Buster Keaton signed an agreement with Arbuckle to give him 35% of all future profits of his production company. Which, I mean, that is, that's quite generous. <laughs> I was going to say, but I mean, if, like, he believed in them from the get-go, so... Yeah not surprising and then that's just a really good friend um he did make a very uh, so Arbuckle did make a very brief comeback in 1932 in a few Vitaphone shorts which were essentially early forms of talkie films and in June on sorry on June 28th 1933 Arbuckle signed a deal with Warner Brothers with Warner Brothers to be in a movie and went out with friends to celebrate this achievement along with celebrating his 1 year anniversary to his third wife. So, first wife from the trial, gun. Second wife, yeah. I don't know where she went. Third one. <laughs> Her name was a whole mouthful, so I essentially shortened her name to Addie McPhail. Okay. <laughs> there was, I think there was like an Odessa or Odonna or something like that in front of it, and it was just like, yeah, no, I can't do this. <laughs> You're going to be Addie from now on. <laughs> good name. It's a good name. Yeah, it's a beautiful name. Uh, so he reportedly said, this is the best day of my life to one of his friends. He went home that night fell asleep and died from a heart attack at the age of 46. Yeah, he couldn't win. Yeah, no. So, I mean, before we close out this episode, I know we've discussed it, but do you think he was guilty? I don't know. Yeah. I think if any... If he did have sexual relations with her... I think that then it was an accident, if anything. Yeah. Um, I don't think he handled the situation very well yeah. to begin with. 
Um, because I think one thing that I had seen was that they tried putting her in an ice bath. I'm like, that's not going to help her. That's going to shock her system and make it worse, people. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that if anything, it was accidental for the death part. The sexual stuff, I don't know because who knows at that point. Yeah. We don't have the full picture, especially because we don't have like this, like the same transparency, I guess. Yeah, as we do now, right? Ugh. Yeah, I feel like I, I'm, I'm essentially the same. I'm, I'm on the same boat with you. I'm, I think he did it, but at the same time, I don't know, and you don't. Sometimes I wish we can, like, just... If we get a time machine, and we can just go back and be like, Haha, you did it. Be a fly on the wall, watch what happened. Yeah. But, I mean, even then, too, I do think about the fact that you are calling him a very chaste man. And he's so well-loved and well-liked. And you're inviting all of these girls to a party? Where is your wife? Why is your wife not at this party? Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, at the time, if we think of, like, what, like, Scott Fitzgerald and stuff was writing about, and, like, if Gatsby had any sort of truth to it as to how parties went in the 1920s during Prohibition, yeah, it's not surprising one bit. Um, and yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if he was sleeping around with his wife's knowledge. Mm, yeah, I um, guess. But yeah, like in general, like I don't think like, I don't think he did any of like I don't think he killed her with any sort of malice. Mm-hmm. No matter what, the death part was an accident. It's just the sexual assault part that I'm like, who knows? Yeah. But let's say he is. You know, he was completely innocent of this. Why would Delmont go around saying all this? So if, let's say, what Buster Keaton said about her is true, is it essentially just, like, do you think, like, she was trying to blackmail Arbuckle into giving her money to essentially say, oh, like, you know, if you give me money, I'll say, I won't say anything, but if you don't... Because if you think about it, right, this happened... On the was it the fifth, and so you're you have three days or so up until she went into the hospital. I mean, what if Delmont did try to go to him between or sorry, no, the ninth? So she had four days to possibly go to him and be like, "Oh, hey, I'm gonna go to the police and say that you did this. Give me a thousand bucks." Do you think that could have possibly been it? The parties in the 1920s, you had drugs, you had alcohol. Yeah. So it could be as to how Virginia was call- like was calling it and what she was seeing or thinking and saying in her drunken, possibly um, drugged state and how drunk or in- and or drugged her friend might have been. 
um and so and like the what they see as truth so like her friend would have witnessed one thing yeah and that would be her truth so that might be that that it became because of like her mental state and like the toxins in her body between the alcohol and possible drugs because who yeah. knows if there's drugs um it might mean that she believed it true and then that stuck that belief stuck right yeah because that is what she perceived um so i don't know i mean it's hard to say because like we don't know exactly what all was being consumed yeah i mean we're we're talking about a time when cocaine was considered medicinal i mean yeah and like one other drugs and stuff that were happening or if they were experimenting with stuff i mean it's hollywood yeah i probably there's multiple different new like forms and stuff of different drugs like that were created in hollywood yeah oh don't go to tinseltown people yeah, no, and if you do go to Tinseltown, just don't go to the big parties unless you really trust the people you're with. Yeah. <laughs> Only one glass of champagne and always keep it on you. <laughs> yeah. Like, go to a Taylor Swift party. You're safe there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> see, for me, it's the opposite. It's just like, yeah, we're gonna go see Slipknot! Yeah! <laughs> Yeah, see, those are the parties that I'd be more concerned about. <laughs> and I would be that sober friend just keeping an eye on everybody. <laughs> At Taylor Swift party, I'd be like, okay, I feel like I can actually get down and dirty, but nothing's gonna happen. She'll bake you brownies. <laughs> well, if, and if something does happen, no one is safe. She's gonna write a song about it. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Somebody ate a brownie. The brownie had pot in it. Oh, I'm a horrible person. Yeah, lucky for me, I can't drink or do any drugs, so. Yes, you're safe. I'm safe. Like, I am perfectly okay. I, I on the other hand. Unless I'm having a flare. And then I maybe not be safe. Like, I don't have the energy to get away from you right now. I, on the other hand, I'm just yeah. like I'm. I'm. I'm R.I.P. at this moment. <laughs> Can you imagine though? Let's go to a Hollywood party and like I say, like four hours into it, I I need you to like drag me out towards the car. It'll be like it'll be like weekend at Bernie's. You'll just stand there. I'm just completely out of it while you're waiting for the Uber. We wouldn't need an Uber. I could take you. I'm sober, remember? Oh, this is true. And if we're at a Hollywood party, we're waiting for a limo. <laughs> this is true. I mean, we can go to we can be like bad bitches on a broke bitch budget. Possibly. I'd prefer to not be on a broke budget. <laughs> like, if I'm going to go to a Hollywood party, I want the money to go with it. Thanks. <laughs> this is true. 
Oh, well, everyone, I'm sure you would love to hear us rant about our madness for a very much longer, but we're almost like an hour for here. So, Ash, if you like, if you could do your plugs. Uh, yeah, you can find what do you hi. You can find what do you know about on all podcast platforms. Stuff will have info in the show notes, um, and you can find us on Instagram at wdyka podcast. Um, yeah, just come find us there. Say hi. I would love to chat with people. <laughs> I will also um, tag you guys in the photo art that we have for this podcast. So if you guys want, make sure you click on the picture and you can just smash that follow button. Um, so thank you all again very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. A link to all of these platforms and Ashley's links and everything we've talked about will be in the show notes. Um, we've got obviously our buy me a coffee where you can purchase the citations for $2. And if you are a Patreon member, you get all of that and more for free with a monthly, small monthly, um, you know, fee to help me, please. I love you. Um, so we would like to be able to be rich enough to go to the Hollywood parties. So if you yeah. make that happen, that'd be great. Yes, please. <laughs> Um, and also I would greatly appreciate it if you can take a minute out of your day to rate or leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And, you know, please send me your book recommendations, comments, complaints, or even if you just want to say hello, you can email me at the Historia Podcast and the number two at gmail.com or you can DM me on Instagram and my handle for that is at the Historia Podcast. Thank you again everybody and I will speak to you again in oh well, I will be gracing your airbud your airbuds. Airbuds. Airbuds? Is that the right word? I can't talk all of a sudden. No, it's earbuds. Like eardrums. Your eardrums. <laughs> We'll be greasing your sound waves. <laughs> In two weeks. <laughs> I think I'm getting pretty tipsy. Okay, we're done. Bye. Bye.